Happy New Year. You know, I don't really like New Year's resolutions. Uh, the reason is because a New Year's resolution is something you do for at most a week or a month, and then you stop and you say, better luck next year, and 11 months go by, your life probably not improving in the areas that you resolve to improve in, and maybe even deteriorating further before the next year in which you say, this year's the year, and you start all over again. Uh, I, I tend to think less in terms of starting new habits in the new year, uh, or making resolutions of starting new habits uh, throughout the year. I think this is maybe a better practice, but with that being said, it does give us a time to pause, and I want to pause this Sunday on uh, seven resolutions from the early church based on the early church's practice. Now, when I say resolution, I don't want you to think of a New Year's resolution. I remember as a teenager going to a friend's home, and it was filled with all of their extended family, plus all of their friends and some of their friends' families. And I just went to this New Year's Eve party not knowing any better. And all of a sudden they said, okay, now write down your resolutions and we're going we're gonna to fold them up and we're going to put them in this box and we're going to take out last year's from last year's party. You know, and then what was really funny as a teenager was when they pulled out like the ex-girlfriend of one of the guys who was there's resolution. Oh, that's not, you know, and kind of moved on. The next year I was probably like that. I wasn't anybody's ex-girlfriend, but I had a resolution in there and did not return the next year. Um, so I had to scramble and just come up with something like be healthier, which is a great, you know, resolution. Very specific, very attainable. Uh, I ate one carrot, was immediately healthier than I was the year before, and all, and moved on. But no, I th resolution being just a dictionary definition, a firm decision to do or not to do something. A firm decision. Uh, not one that wavers, not one that changes when a week or a month goes by. A firm decision. And the thing that I want to challenge our church with this year is to be a more biblically faithful church. Now, that may mean a more traditionally Baptist church. It also may mean less of a traditionally Baptist church. It may mean looking more like the church that's down the street from us. It may mean looking less like the churches that are down the street from us. Our standard as a church should not be to look like some other church. And it should not be to look like some church that we were 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, even 110 years ago. What we should aspire to is to be a more biblically faithful church. And that's the primary resolution I want to bring before you today. And looking at the early church and their practice, I think there are seven ways that we can improve. Because the early church, as we see in Acts chapter 2, was devoted to seven practices that can transform our church and through us, our community. So we look, first of all, at verses 42 and 43, and we see that the early churches were devoted to four communal practices. Now, I want to pause here and say, when we look at the book of Acts, we need to take, there's a word of caution here. Uh, some of the Bible is descriptive without being prescriptive. What I mean by that is it's describing situations that you are not intended to see as examples to follow. I'll give you a classic one that many of you will know. David can be a good example in many ways, but not so much when it comes to the story of him and Bathsheba, right? Clearly, there are things described in the Bible for which we're never so supposed to see as something we ought to do. 
And, and if you want to see that clearly, uh, hang out in the book of Judges for a while. Many, many considered faithful followers of God did some things that we are actually commanded not to do sometimes. And so we look at this uh, passage noting that primarily it's descriptive. It's telling us what the church did. But that might actually bear out some implications for maybe possibly what we should do. And we'll cautiously look at that this morning. So we see that they were devoted to four communal practices. The first of which is that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now the apostle is, is a proper, very proper word here, very specific word. Referring primarily at this time to the 12 disciples that had followed Jesus. It's actually 12 minus 1 plus 1, because as you know, one of the disciples of Jesus betrayed him, and by this point in the book of Acts, he's already committed suicide. So he's no longer with this group anymore. But he has been replaced in Matthew, or sorry, in Acts chapter 1, he is replaced with Mattathias. And so we have these disciples, these close followers of Jesus, who were physically there with Jesus. Later, as the church goes on, we see other people are brought in to be apostles. Possibly the most famous one is the Apostle Paul, who wrote 12 of the books in our New Testament out of 27. That's quite a bit of them. And was known as an apostle specifically to the Gentiles. So the apostles are people who have had direct experiences in the presence of Jesus. Now, what the apostles' teaching would have been, at this time, it would have been literally the apostles' teaching, and, and possibly some of their followers' teaching. And they would have been orally telling the stories of Jesus. They would have been talking about what it was like to follow Jesus. They would have been telling uh, about the things that he taught them. When he left the apostles in Matthew 28, when he gives the Great Commission, as we call it, he says to teach them to obey everything I commanded you. So they were likely teaching the things that Jesus had taught, the things that he had commanded. They were encouraging this whole life of following Jesus. They probably were also connecting the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus to the Old Testament scriptures as we call them or, or just their scriptures as they called them. We see this in earlier in Acts chapter 2. Peter gives the famous sermon at Pentecost, and he's quoting from the Old Testament. This is pretty common in the apostolic uh, teaching. Now, for us, what does this mean? Because I don't know about you, but I have never met the Apostle Peter. I've never met the Apostle John. And if someone were to tell me they were either of those people, to be frank, I would probably look to get them committed. Okay, I, I'm not sure that we should be, have any faith or confidence in anyone claiming to be an apostle, the Apostle Peter or the Apostle John today. But with that being said, very helpfully, some of their teaching was written down. And we have in the New Testament what some scholars call the apostolic writings. That's because one of the standards for whether a book was included in the New Testament was whether it was apostolic, meaning whether it was from an apostle or from the immediate follower of an apostle. Luke, writing here in Acts, was an immediate follower of the apostle Paul and had some connection with the other apostles. So it's apostolic. So when we read the New Testament, we are reading the apostles' teaching. And when we connect that with the Old Testament, we are still faithfully hearing from the apostles' teaching. We are reading the Old Testament in light of the New. We are reading the Hebrew Scripture in light of the Hebrew Messiah. Jesus Christ. And so as we do this, we are committed to the apostles. What does this look like, though, for our church today? 
Well, this looks like a commitment in all that we teach and preach and confess in our churches to be gospel-centered and from the Scripture. That what we teach is the good news about Jesus of Nazareth, and we do so from the, the documents that we have here, those that were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we are committed to the apostles' teaching today through the Scripture. That's why normally when we preach on Sunday, the regular diet of our church in the preaching ministry is that we preach fairly consecutively through books of the Bible, taking a section or a verse at a time. And this isn't just for our, you know, this isn't just because we thought, well, this is convenient. Now, to be clear, as someone who has to write a sermon every week, it's fairly convenient to pick up knowing where you were the last week. Some of you maybe have preached before, and, and if you've done that without knowing what you're going to preach, it's a, it's a lot harder than if you know that, okay, next week I'm just going to pick up in this verse. But that's not the primary motivation. The primary motivation is that we actually learn from the Scripture about God the way it was written. That as the biblical authors wrote these books, we're actually walking through them side by side. And it should be our commitment, not just in the preaching on a Sunday morning, but in every aspect of our church, to be, have our teaching founded in the Scripture and to be focused on the gospel. And it should be the case that even when we take something like a non-biblical book, as you know, I like books. Some of you have been in my office and you're concerned about how much I like books. You and my wife have something in common. And some of you have read books with me. I've said, go read this book, let's get together and we'll talk about it. But the important thing is that we're not just reading a fan fiction. We're not just reading some book that we picked up at Barnes & Noble. We're reading books that hopefully, for the most part, are consistent with the teaching we find in Scripture. Even if we find places to disagree with them. The difference is when we read those books, when we disagree with it, and we point to Scripture to say we disagree with it, we're okay. When we read this book and we disagree with it, we need to pause and say, okay, but where am I wrong? Where am I wrong? And that should be the commitment of our church to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. I think our church is fairly good at this, so I'll just move on from here. The next thing we have is that they were devoted to the fellowship. The fellowship. This is a common word. I remember the first time I went overseas, I didn't know Greek at the time. And the church we were serving was Koinonia Baptist Church. Now, if you've heard a pastor talk about the word fellowship before, maybe you know that koinonia is the Greek for fellowship. That word is common in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament. And it signals to us a core aspect of the church when they gather together, that they have fellowship, they have friendship, they have familial relationships with one another. This, is, this should be pretty obvious to us if you know anything about what the church actually is. You may have heard it said, the church is in a building, it's you. I want to clarify, it's not you, actually. It's you all, but it's not you. And what I mean by that is you as an individual are not the church. The, the word church is in the Greek is ekklesia. It literally means gathering or assembly. When the church gathers, that's the church. And I'm going to clue you into something. It's very difficult to be a church member, to be someone committed to a local church if you aren't committed to gathering 
with your local church. It is very difficult. And maybe you've had a season in your life where you did not attend church, either out of uh, sinful negligence or out of providential you know, reasons that you couldn't control. And I hope that through that season of time you said, wow, I'm kind of disconnected from the church. This isn't good for me to be away from the church this long. And I can tell you this, as much as you might enjoy missing church now, when you are in your 80s and 90s and 100s and you can't physically come to church, some of you are you know, in your 80s and you're still coming to church, good for you. But you know many of your friends cannot. And let me tell you, every time I visit them, they talk about how much they miss church. And I bet they're glad for every Sunday they were able to be here. And one day, you may come to a point in your life where you say, I miss every Sunday that I was there, and I wish I could have more of them back again. We have to be committed to the fellowship, and it's not just because showing up to church is so that we can sit in a pew or stand near a pew and watch some people do stuff. The point of fellowship, that word koinonia, it's participation. It's being involved in the service. That's why it's so good that when we begin our service, we begin it with a call to worship from the scripture. And what do we do? We all stand together and we all read it out loud together. That's because you are participating in the service. When there's preaching and you say amen loudly, as you, you know, so often do, as evidenced by this morning, I'm just teasing y'all. You're participating in the service. When we read the scripture, we say, this is the word of the Lord. And we all together say, thanks be to God. You are participating in the service. When the benediction is given and you receive that blessing, and even maybe I do this often, but you may not, you hold out your hands just to physically show that you are receiving this blessing from the scripture. You are participating in the service. And at the end of the prayers, when you say amen, you are participating in the service. And you know what? Even before the call to worship and even after the benediction, when you get in this room and talk to each other, you are participating in the church. You are being the church to one another. When you ask about the difficult things in your life that are going on, when you stop and lay a hand on someone and pray for them, even though there's 50 other people around. You're participating in the church. The church needs you here because if you're not here, there is no church. If everyone in here just decided, they don't need me this Sunday, I'm going to stay home. And all that happened is I showed up and got up here to an empty room. That would not be the church. That would be me wasting my time, to be quite honest. But if we all show up, if we all gather together, if we have true fellowship, we are being the church And it should go beyond how was the ball game and can you believe the weather this morning. I used to, uh, our church isn't as bad about this, but I've been in churches where that's basically all the conversations that happened on a Sunday morning. To be honest with you, it was almost shocking when the service began and people started talking about holy things like God and the church. Because up until that point and as soon as that service was over, that was not the conversation in the room by anyone. That should not be normal in our churches. We see that they're not just devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, but as it says in verse 42, to the breaking of bread. Now, when I read that, I'm thinking this is the church gathering. And I start to think the breaking of the bread. For me, that pretty quickly 
makes me think of the communion, the Lord's Supper. And and if you go back to Luke in chapter 22, Luke, who wrote this in Acts, writes in chapter 22, the the story of the Last Supper in which the, the Lord's Supper was instituted, and he uses that phrase, the breaking of the bread. You go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, and Paul uses that phrase, breaking of the bread, to talk about the Lord's Supper. So when I read that, I think of the Lord's Supper. Now, to be clear, there's debate here about whether that's the Lord's Supper or not. So one thing I like to do when I prepare sermons is I like to decide what I think about a text before I go and read other people's opinions about it. But I think often, unless I know for sure that there's not a lot of debate about that passage, it's good to go read other people's opinions about it. Because guess what? I could be wrong. And by the way, this is why you shouldn't just take any preacher's word for anything. My goodness, how lazy you must be to hear someone say something controversial from a pulpit and then just say, okay, well, going to go eat chicken. You know, it's lunchtime. Church is over. No, we have, to, we have to test what is said from the pulpit and from, from anybody in the church that's teaching. And even people who aren't teaching. You might hear people casually, they may not be standing up in a room, but they might be casually teaching, saying things to you. And you're starting to go, well, that can't be quite right. And you know what we usually do? We go, okay, well, that was weird. And we walk away, and that's, that's about it. Well, here we have something controversial. Is the breaking of the bread referring to communion or not? Were the followers of Jesus in these churches in Jerusalem, when they gathered, taking the Lord's Supper basically every time they gathered together, or not? That's an important question to answer, because if they were doing it, there seems to be at least some reason we should be considering doing it. So here's what I did. I don't have a ton of commentaries on Acts, but I have six of them, which you're thinking, oh my goodness, that's, that's a lot of commentaries on Acts. I only have like four of them are on Acts Two of them are on the whole New Testament, and I pulled those out anyway. Five of the six said this is almost certainly the Lord's Supper that it's referring to. One of them said this. He said this is probably referring to a communal meal they ate that ended with them taking the Lord's Supper. That's what we call a distinction without a difference. Okay, He's saying that this was probably a meal that ended in the Lord's Supper, not the Lord's Supper itself. Okay. What was the point, though? They took the Lord's Supper. I grew up in the Christian church tradition. And let me tell you, there's a reason I left. And I'm not saying anything about, bad about the Christian church. My family still goes to the Christian church. I still love a lot of things about uh, those independent Christian churches. And, grow, and one of the things that I appreciated and I grew to miss was that we did take communion every Sunday. And you know what was really neat was You know, I talked about how there's some shut-ins who can't come physically to church. Every afternoon, on every Sunday afternoon, shut-ins were taking the Lord's Supper. Every single week. And you know what that taught me? That taught me that even though we couldn't physically come into their house, the whole church, and they couldn't physically come to our church, they were still a part of our church because they communed with us that morning through the supper. That was incredibly important to some of those people for, for years in which they physically couldn't come to church. They still felt connected because they had pastors coming to them and sharing the supper with them. And when I went to college, I went to a Baptist church. I was pretty well convinced I was going to become Baptist at that point. 
I mean, I was going to Oklahoma Baptist University. Thought, you know, that's a good trajectory, sure. And, uh, and it was a good church. But after my freshman year, I went back home for the summer. And I was taking communion every week. And we were singing. And another thing we did was we sang the doxology every week, which the Baptist church I attended didn't do. And I felt a little convicted that those things were pretty important to me. And I went back uh, to college that year. And I had a friend who was a pastor of a church about 15 minutes from the town uh, my university was in. And I just decided, I'll go to his church. I know that he might not practice the Lord's Supper every week, but he, he, he believes what the, the church should. He may not sing the doxology every week, but he believes the church should. And I kid you not, this is the providence of God. I showed up on that Sunday. The Sunday or two before, they had moved back into their sanctuary after a remodel. And when they did, they had changed their service to include the Lord's Supper every week and the doxology and a couple other things. And I, there was not a more meaningful service in my entire life probably than that one that Sunday. And so I said, I'll just go back the next week and the next week and the next week. I ended up becoming a member there. I ended up becoming an intern there. They licensed me to gospel ministry there. I started, I started a college and career Sunday school there. And, and, and really enjoyed that church. You know what? That was a first Baptist church. And you know what? There were people who left that church because some of those changes. They gave some other reasons, but the main one was those changes. But here's the question. Are we more concerned about being a typical first Baptist church or a typical Southern Baptist church or to be a more biblically faithful church? Now, what you're not going to hear me say this morning is, we're going to start taking communion every week. But I think the fact that the church was coming together and taking communion every time the whole church gathered. Now, they weren't taking it. If we had a Wednesday night prayer meeting, they would not take it at a Wednesday night prayer meeting. Because there's no expectation that the whole church is there. If we had a special Sunday evening event that was for women... They wouldn't take the Lord's Supper there. The church wouldn't. Because the whole church wouldn't be there. It was a whole church meal. It wasn't just for small groups or, or different things like that. But every time they gathered, it seems that they were devoted to taking the Lord's Supper. So I think this should push us. This should push us outside of our comfort zones. One, as a church, I think we should pray, and I, and I would encourage maybe that this be a prayer request at the prayer meeting, to pray about how our church should be approaching the Lord's Supper. You know what? We take the Lord's Supper once a month. Do you know how many more times that is than a lot of Southern Baptist churches about 20 years ago? That's probably about 11 to 12 times more than a lot of Southern Baptist churches 20 years ago. But if all we're doing is comparing ourselves to a standard from 20 years ago instead of the standard of Scripture, I think we are probably getting some things wrong. Now that being said, I'm going to leave that in your hands as a church to pray and consider that. But what we definitely should see is that in taking the Lord's Supper every week, they were receiving a blessing that we miss out on when we don't take it. Because they were seeing the gospel portrayed, not just through someone preaching, not just through a text being read, but they, were, they could smell the bread and the fruit of the vine. They could eat and taste it and smell and taste and feel the gospel before them. That's something that we just simply cannot do without it. 
So not only were they receiving a blessing, though, they were getting an, it was an opportunity to make sure that their fellowship was truly good. Something that I tell you all sometimes is, is we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Take this time to confess your sins to God. It's not about getting your heart right with God as if, as if that you have to do some magical incantation kind of prayer before you take the supper. But it is to say that it's an opportunity for us to say, I want to confess my sins to God before I take it. And you know what? If you have a problem with a brother or sister in this body, I think it's on you that before the next time we take the Lord's Supper, you go and reconcile with that brother or sister. I really do. I say that as someone who has not always done that. But it is something that we are supposed to do. Why? Because we're communing with them together in the Lord's Supper, in the gospel. And if we're not reconciling before that happens, if we're saying, you know what, we'll let it be. We just don't get along, let's move on. I think you're missing out on a part of what it is to take the Lord's Supper. The other thing they were devoted to were prayers. In verse 42, prayers. Now these are the four things that it tells us that this early church was devoted to shortly after Pentecost. 3,000 people had been added to the church. And these were some of the practices they were devoted to. They were devoted to the prayers. I think historically, in the book of Acts and in other uh, times throughout history, churches have had things like prayer meetings, which we do here at our church on Wednesdays. We'll start that back January 10th. I'd encourage you to come. It's very important that we be praying as a church. I don't, it's, it's, when I grew up, it almost felt like prayers were transitions. Prayers were the time in which everyone's eyes were closed so the musicians could get on the stage and get off the stage. They were the times in which we were moving from the music to the preaching, so we said a little prayer. It was a time in which if we don't pray at the end of the service, it's going to be kind of awkward when we're like, okay, see you later, see you next week. So we'd pray. That's not why we should pray whatsoever. We should pray because we are communing with God. We should pray because we have access to speak to the Father in a way that no one without Jesus Christ can. We have access to speak directly to God. We don't need any mediary other than Jesus Christ. We pray in the name of Jesus, through Jesus, to the Father, and we get to speak to him. He hears your prayers. That is an honor and a privilege. It's a solemn thing, and it's a joyful thing. And it's something that we all ought to be passionate about. And it's, it's difficult because some of us, just personality-wise, aren't prayers. We don't find it easy to speak to our wives, our neighbors, our friends about anything, let alone our feelings. How are we going to speak to God about those things? Well, this is one of the blessings that Jesus gives us in that he gives us a model prayer. We often call it the Lord's Prayer. You know what? You don't have to be a genius to just go read those words to God and at least make a little bit of movement towards being a person of prayer. Not only that, but in Romans, Paul writes that when we do not know what to pray to God, the Spirit prays on our behalf. So even sitting there in silence not knowing what to pray, we can make ground on praying what we need to say to God. And our prayer may simply be this, Lord, I don't know what to pray. I pray your spirit prays for me. It could be as simple as that. But as a church, we need to be committed to prayer. And you know what's wild is because prayer has become sometimes such a thing that's just, again, a, a little thing we do in between transitions in a service. 
that when we actually pause and pray for longer periods of time, people think we're crazy. I heard one person say, a guy named John Mark Clifton, say that our prayers should never be shorter in our services than our announcements. Now talk about conviction. I ran into someone the other day uh, who, who came to our church at one point, and he said that they were having their time of family worship, and he prayed for the family, and it was a longer prayer than he normally did, and the boy said, wow, that was longer than even one of Chandler's prayers, which I took a lot of pride in. I think he meant it as a good thing. Maybe not. We need to be people of prayer. And our church needs to be a praying church. Not just a church that prays, a praying church. One that believes that in the power of prayer, things can change. God can work. Our, uh, I remember Oswald Chambers said that prayer does not equip us for the greater work. It is the greater work. We sometimes pray quickly before we do things because we have already decided to do those things. Yet we are called to be a people of prayer such that more often than not, we should be praying instead of doing. And people don't like when you say that because they're like, well, okay, but you should do stuff, right? Yeah, of course you should, but you should probably spend more time praying about what you should do, how you should do it, why you should do it, when you should do it, and what you should do about it than going and doing stuff. Because we try to do so much in our own power. We are so unequipped for what we do because we have not been on our knees in prayer. And our churches suffer the same fate. Now what's amazing to me is that these four things are very simple practices. Notice some things that aren't said here. The one that stands out the most to me is that nowhere does it say they were devoted to singing worship songs. Or singing hymns or even singing psalms. Now, to be clear, I think Colossians 3 tells us that we should be singing. I'm not anti-singing. I'm very pro-singing. But shouldn't it bother you a little bit? I know some of you are musically inclined, and that's why the music means so much to you. But shouldn't it bother you to just sit there and go, the early church, in all these lists, and there's another one in chapter 4 and another one later in Acts, in which Luke describes what the church was doing, and none of them does it talk about singing. It talks about being devoted to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. And yet if you go to many of our evangelical conservative Bible churches today, they probably spend more time singing than anything other than the preaching. I'll just let that sit there for a moment. I'm not going to say anything else about it. But these simple practices, look at verse 43, filled the members of these churches with awe, for God and from God. It says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. These simple practices, that if you went into the world and said, do you think a group of people that came together weekly or daily to, to learn from the Bible, to spend time together and love each other, to take a meal of bread and fruit of the vine, and to pray, do you think those people are going to be filled with the awe of God and see miracles and signs and wonders done, everyone in this world would probably say no. Yeah, that's the very thing that happens here. Now, we need to quickly 
maybe not so quickly, look at what the individual Christians were doing outside of their church's gathering to get the whole picture. That's four practices the early church had. But there are three daily habits that early Christians had. The first one can be summarized with the word hospitality. It says in verse 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were together. Their homes were open. They were doing, as, as Baptists like to say, they were doing life together. I remember being in high school. Here's my comment. I grew up in the Christian church, but here's my Baptist credentials. I grew up in the Christian church in Oklahoma, which meant I was really Baptist, okay? If you're in Oklahoma or Tennessee, you know that every non- Every non, every church, every event you go to that has multiple churches at it, that's what I'm trying to say, is a Baptist event, okay, most of the time. Sometimes it's a charismatic event, but oftentimes it's a Baptist event. So I grew up basically Baptist. All of our bookstores were owned by Baptist, our Christian bookstores. All the books we read were written by Baptist for the most part, or people who used to be Baptist, okay? And so those are my Baptist credentials. And I remember being a teenager and always hearing all the Baptists get up at FCA events going, you know, we, we just need to do life together. Like, what are you talking about, do life together? This is what doing life together looks like, though. It's being together. It's taking care of one another. I recently told someone, um, you know, I reminded them of Galatians 6.2. It tells us, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You are uh, encouraged by Scripture to give your burdens to Jesus, but Church members are also commanded to bear your burdens with you, to care for you. What was probably going on at this time was that there was uh, persecution going on in this area against the Christians, a lot of it probably financial. And so what happens is the community comes together, and the ones who had more gave. The ones who needed more received. And that's what the community looked like. And in every faithful church, it may not mean that you go sell everything you have and just put it in the offering plate, But every faithful Christian in every faithful church is called that when there is a need, to do their best to meet that need. And so we see that they were practicing hospitality. They were opening up their homes. Now, part of the reason there's debate about the breaking of the bread referring to the Lord's Supper is there are passages like here in verse 46 where it's used probably not to refer to the Lord's Supper. And and, and all the commentators that I read that said this In verse uh, 42, it refers to the Lord's Supper. All said in verse 46, it doesn't. And the key being that they were breaking bread where? In their homes. It was emphasizing that they were having meals together in their homes. Now, they may have all gathered in their homes for church as well. But the emphasis is here on uh, breaking bread in their homes. And then it says they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They were generously providing meals for each other and caring for one another. This is what the, the, the Christian is called to pursue what Rosaria Butterfield calls radically ordinary hospitality. Radically ordinary hospitality. It's the disposition of opening up your heart and your hands and your home to people in need. Now, specifically, the emphasis here, and in many parts of Scripture, is doing that for the church family, taking care of the church family. 
That should be the priority. In fact, in the uh, early church, when they were in Rome, part of the thing that attracted non-Christians to join the church was that they saw that in a place where there was a lot of poverty among those who were not in positions of power, they saw that the church was a place where people took care of each other. Now, that wouldn't have meant they, oh, well, I'm just going to join for the sake of getting taken care of. But it led them to look into this community, find out about it. And so today we prioritize taking care of one another. But we should also be opening our hands and our hearts and our homes for lost people. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield, who I just mentioned, has a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I would encourage you all uh, to find it and read it. And she very much practices what I would emphasize as radically ordinary hospitality. Uh, I think she opens her home every single week for anyone in their neighborhood to come have a meal. And she says very openly, yeah, sometimes we have really high grocery bills. Sometimes it's very difficult. Sometimes it's very bothersome, but we do it anyway. And you know what? Her church does not have a program of hospitality. It doesn't have a program of small groups. You know why they do it? Because they think they're supposed to. Uh, I, I think I've had this conversation with a few of you. I think I've had this conversation with Mike, that everyone's favorite way of approaching things in the church is to come to the pastor and say, I think this needs to be done. It's like, well, that's really cool, but I didn't necessarily think it needed to be done, so maybe you should go do it. And even if I do think it needs to be done, it sounds like it's a great idea that the Lord is bringing you, not me. So why don't you go do it? Uh, this, we need to uh, notice that in the Scripture, we are being called to provide hospitality, whether there's a church initiative or a church program or a pastor who's enthusiastically supporting it. Here's, here's another thing. I'm not going to talk about this in the sermon, really. Actually, I am. But one resolution that maybe you should have for this new year is reading Scripture. And if you read it and actually pay attention, you're going to find yourself convicted again and again about things that you are not doing or that you are doing that you shouldn't be doing. You're going to find yourself convicted about a lot of things in the Christian life. And if you've read this Bible and never seen the idea that hospitality is something Christians ought to do, well, okay, we need to work on some reading comprehension skills. And I don't mean to be rude. I'm just being clear. I mean, it's just there. Any, read the New Testament. It's there. It's clear. It's commanded. It's described. And so as we look at reading our Bibles this year, we ought to be looking for those kinds of things. Now, many of us will use certain things as excuses. Well, I don't keep a very clean home, so I can't have people over. Or I go on vacation a lot, so I can't have people over regularly. Let's just be clear. Those are excuses. If you are physically incapable of cleaning your home, then get out of your house and have a cup of coffee with someone. That's okay. I'm hesitant to say just because you're bad at cleaning your home, you should always be outside of your house doing hospitality. Uh, maybe you should just learn how to clean your home. And I'm not trying to be overly judgmental here. I'm not trying to give you some legalistic formula for making your bed, okay? I'm just saying we should be a kind of people that are trying to have open hearts for other people, open hands to serve them, and open homes to make them feel welcome. Some people in this world have never had a home. They've been in houses their whole life. They've never had a home. 
They have gone without having loving parents. They have never seen what it looks like for a faithful husband to love a faithful wife and vice versa. They've never seen what it looks like for a father to pick up their child and and kiss them and hug them and tell them they love them. Some people have never seen those things. And if people who have those things don't open their homes to show an example of it, they'll never see those things. They They may have never had a family that opens their Bible and talks about what's in it. And if you don't let them in your house and let them see you do that with your family or let you see that them, you do that on your own, they will never see it. We are taught to teach people the truths in Scripture, but we are also taught to be examples to people. And if we do not live in a way that is a good example and we do not invite people to come and see, they may never get that. They also, in verse 47, were praising God. It's kind of interesting that it takes all of that, all those verses describing the church and the people outside the church before it says they were praising God. Probably in context with taking this meal, they were praising or thanking God for it. But I think this also should push on us to find ways to worship God outside of this building and outside of Sunday morning. Specifically to worship God in our homes or at least with our families. So that gives us two things. We should be committed to what I think the Puritans called secret devotions. We Baptists call them quiet times, <laughs> in which we open up the Bible, and we read it, and we think about it, and we pray to God, and maybe even we sing to God on our own. And you need to do this. You know why? Because if you don't, and you're depending on this church to be your source of praising God, you are going to fail to do all that God wants from you. Really, we want to come here on Sunday morning already praised up. What I mean by that is we should come here, and it shouldn't matter what songs we sing on a Sunday, because all the songs that really speak to our heart, we can sing at home. Unless you think you can't, YouTube, Spotify, these things exist now, okay? There are ways. If you don't know how to work your phone to make it play the songs you like, uh, well, I'm not going to do this to myself. Go see Cody. He can help you out. He'll take as many phone calls as are necessary to help you. (laughs) We'll just add that to the director of music uh, part of his job. Answer phone calls, tell people how to work Spotify on their phone or YouTube. You can praise God exactly how you want to throughout the week. And come to church ready to praise God how we need to together. That's an important thing. And so we all ought to be committed. This is a good time of year to look at Bible reading plans. But you know what? Some of you are really bad at Bible reading plans. You know what might be a better goal? Five or ten minutes in the Bible every day. That might be a better goal. One chapter every day. Don't have a plan. I just go and I pick one book and I just read one chapter a day. That might be enough for you right now. And I know some people who don't even read the Bible. They listen to the Bible. That's another thing you can do now. And you know what? At the time in which this was written, when it says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, you know what they didn't have in front of them usually to read? The Bible. You know how they were receiving it? Through it being read or quoted or just the speaking of it. And so what that means is you're not, just, you're not some sinner because you listen to the Bible, okay? If that's how you need to get this accomplished, you accomplish it that way. Also, if you have a family, if you have a spouse, if you have people in your home, find some time where you come together and worship God together, where you talk about the Bible together, where you sing together, where you pray together, 
That's a very important and good thing that we do not have in our cultures today. And that's something that our families should be doing. In a world where you think, uh, in a society where you think the family is being attacked, maybe you should make your family more resilient by praising God together and studying his word together. The last daily habit, we see hospitality, we see worship. The last thing is we see witnessing. It says in verse 47, they're praising God and having favor with all the people. Now, to be clear, that didn't mean they were doing whatever all the people wanted them to do. If they were, they wouldn't be doing any of this, actually, except for going to the temple in Jerusalem. When it says that they had favor among all the people, you know what? They weren't jerks about it. They weren't walking around picking fights about what they were believing differently. They were caring for people, and they were caring for their people. And you know what? A part of the reason they had favor with people is because of these practices they were committed to. They were radically and ordinarily committed to following Jesus daily. Daily following Jesus. If we're all being honest, we probably rarely follow Jesus every day. And that should be, I guess, an indictment against us and our faithfulness. But what was the result of all of this? Listen to this in verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We often want that so much that we skip everything that came before it from verse 42 through 47. We so much want God adding to our number daily because we think that makes us successful. We think that makes us look good and important and attractive that we skip over everything else. I know churches that the reason they don't take the Lord's Supper every week is because they don't want people to think they're strange. They want visitors to feel welcome. I know a church that takes the Lord's Supper every week except on Easter Day because there's so many visitors on Easter Day they don't want to have to like work through that, which really uh, irritates me. But because that is a great example of the gospel. I, I've known several children, and I can think of one right now, who seeing the Lord's Supper and being told they couldn't take it because they weren't a baptized Christian yet, desired to have a conversation about becoming a Christian. I know multiple children that that's their story. And so these things that we sometimes consider less, we, we go, nobody, no visitor who's not a Christian wants to show up and listen to 10 minutes of someone praying. Now, we never have one prayer in the last 10 minutes. Unless I'm just feeling it that morning, I guess. But, but we don't have that. But we have prayers throughout that probably if you add up all our prayers, I hope they come close. And we say, oh, that'd be really boring for people. Let's just use the prayers in between stuff. That is just not how we approach this. I, I, I hear a, we, we need to be a church. If we want to see people saved, if we want to see, see people saved often, we need to be a church that's more concerned about being faithful to God. Because what will God do with a faithful church? I think in most instances, he will grow it. And I think that an unfaithful church, God might grow an unfaithful church, but I think it'll probably be to their detriment rather than to their long-term gain because he might not grow it the way they want. The Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said this in the early 20th century. He said, the world today is looking for and desperately needs true Christians. I am never tired of saying 
that what the church needs to do is not to organize evangelistic campaigns to attract outside people, but to begin to live the Christian life. Now, I'm not always anti-evangelistic campaign, but I think what he is noticing is the deeper truth. And the deeper truth is this. It doesn't matter how evangelistic you are if you don't live the gospel. That word evangelize is just connected with the word for gospel. It doesn't matter how much you gospelize people if you're not living the gospel in your daily life. It doesn't matter how much you tell people about the goodness of God if you don't really pay attention to God Monday through Saturday, nor do you come to church and try to worship Him faithfully. And so these practices and habits give us seven resolutions for our church family as a whole and as individuals for the coming year. And I'm going to read off seven quick resolutions. And I will, if you are on the email for the church, the weekly update email, if you're not, you can get connected through our website. Uh, I will send these out this week. But here is the first one. We resolve to be a church that clearly teaches the gospel from the Bible. Number two. We resolve to be a church that fervently fights for unity, love, and peace among our body. Number three, we resolve to be a church that receives communion with deep reverence, thoughtful reflection, and frequent participation. Number four, we resolve to be a church that prays without ceasing, trusting its power. Prioritizing things like the prayer meeting. Prioritizing prayer in our Sunday service. And the next three are for us as individuals. Not just us together, but as individuals. I resolve to be a Christian who generously opens my heart, hands, and home to others. Number six. I resolve to be a Christian who faithfully worships God every day in my home. I resolve to be a Christian who joyfully represents Christ with my words and actions toward others. Now this is not a legalistic scheme. This is discipline for disciples. This is a standard which the scripture gives us and that Christ died, not just just to save us for when we fail this standard, but to send us his Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to give us the power to reach the standard. And we often leave that part out, but it's so important. My resolution this year as your pastor, as one of your elders, is one of your, we don't use this word often, overseers, is to see that our church is more biblically faithful. That when we discuss things, we don't just want to change things or keep things the way they are because we saw it work somewhere down the street or because we saw it work here 40 years ago. We do things. Why? Because the Bible tells us so. Let's pray.